0: Welcome to Mental Health and You. This podcast brings you the best information and advice from across the Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. Every fortnight we will hear from one of our specialist areas, be it school and parent support, the recovery college, well-being or research.
1: Hi, my name's Bryony G. am a researcher with Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust. I lead the Child, Family and Young People's Research Development Team um, and have been leading this project that we're talking about today, Aspire. And I'm with...
2: Hi, uh, I'm Isabella. So I am the Research Assistant Psychologist for the Aspire study. Along with Bryony and Isabella, I also interviewed Rachel,
0: who is part of the stakeholder group on Aspire. She brings lived experience to the
3: project. So it's a project about children, but it's a whole family and parent approach, which is what um, I think is really important. So having, being a parent myself, parent of three children, and having lived experience of a child who has had some significant mental health challenges, um, I just, really feel strongly about that whole support system Um, and if children's mental health rates are going to go down well we need to support the parents as well so um, it's definitely the parent sort of support approach that appeals to me. Aspire has been
0: set up to treat ACEs. Bryony explains what they are. So ACES
1: stands for adverse childhood experiences, um, and they're a group of stressful or upsetting events that have been found to be associated with negative health outcomes, um, and that includes both physical and mental health, um, but they're particularly strongly associated with poor mental health throughout a person's life. Um, and the sort of experiences that come under the kind of category of ACEs um, are things like family breakup, um, things like abuse, neglect, maltreatment. Um, adults in the family misusing drugs or alcohol, like a whole um, range of difficult or stressful experiences that young people can have early in life. Um, And they're really quite common. Around 50% of people in the UK will experience at least one adverse childhood experience before they reach the age of 18.
0: Here is Rachel, who has experience of trauma in her family. I mean, I just feel
3: that um, parents can inadvertently, maybe cause ACEs within their own family, within their own, you know, to their own children, without necessarily being in full control, or aware of how they're doing that, or the impact that it's having at the time, or, you know, let alone the sort of longer term implications of that. Um, And I think it it can happen in families which are not traditionally viewed as at risk in that area as well. If we want children's mental health rates to sort of go down, then we need to give parents a voice in all of this. I think, obviously, when it comes to ACEs that are inflicted by parents themselves, then an understanding of what's going on for that parent is absolutely essential to supporting them to making changes in their behaviour.
0: Isabella explains ACEs can occur in many areas of a child's life.
2: So it's both experiences, you know, in the home and also outside of the home. So, for instance, in the school setting, um, a child who experiences bullying or, or even, you know, in, in a life-threatening illness or there, there can be, a, a, it's actually a really wide range of adverse experiences which can contribute to poor mental health mm. in the and- future.
1: And the more um, adverse childhood experiences a young person has had, the more likely that they then are to have mental health problems later in life. But really importantly, that's not a kind of deterministic relationship. So just because you have had adverse childhood experiences, it doesn't necessarily mean um, that you'll go on to experience poor health outcomes later on. Um, and we know there are some things that can help protect young people from going on to have those negative outcomes um, and one of the really key things that can help to protect a young person um, is having a positive relationship with at least one adult in their life. Um, so a really helpful, supportive, nurturing relationship. Um, so that's part of where the idea for this project came um, was to try and sort of build and strengthen um, a relationship with a parent or carer in the young person's life.
3: them in the in, in delivering the invent, intervention is important because it gives them the skills and tools to be able to make the changes in themselves as well um and then I I think there needs to be some support within that as well generally um and you know if there was an infrastructure in place which which supported the parent in delivering the intervention I think that's in an ideal world that's how it would be <laughs>
0: The idea to have caregivers deliver the intervention initially came from a conference Bryony attended a few years ago.
1: Parents and carers were telling us that they wanted to be more involved in supporting the young people and being part of the solution, I guess, um, when their um, child was experiencing difficulties. Um, So that was kind of the initial um, inspiration. Um, And then from there, we were put in touch with Professor Cathy Creswell, um, who's done a lot of really great work on equipping parents and carers to deliver CBT for anxiety to their young people. So um, they've done a lot of research now to show that it's a really effective way um, of delivering support. So rather than a mental health professional supporting a child directly, they work with a parent or caregiver um, and teach them the skills and techniques that they can then use with their child in their day-to-day life. Um, so we thought that we could take that kind of model Um, of supporting and empowering parents um, to um, work in evidence-based ways with their child, but here, rather than focusing on on anxiety, focusing on building resilience following stressful, upsetting events.
2: What I think is also quite interesting in that sense is that often you'll find parents feel like their hands are tied, like there's nothing they can do Mm -hmm. when their child is experiencing something upsetting, and I think to give that option, obviously it's not ideal for 100%, you know, people, nothing is. Mm-hmm. Um, but to give that option, to have them get involved and feel like they have some sort of power, some sort of control, some sort of something that they, they can contribute themselves and not just, you know, waiting for for healthcare, waiting for the system, waiting for, you know, a professional. Mm-hmm. I think it can also be quite quite empowering and quite like, I don't know, in a way, um, makes making the parent feel like they have some sort of you know knowledge and 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 something they can do to help out as well um so it's quite interesting to get them into that position as well as that bond because you know you'll have healthcare professionals you'll have teachers you'll have lots of people who can be a part of that of that young person's life but if you can also strengthen that bond it's one more element that can help you know that child um overcome Mm. and what they are going through as well
0: Rachel gave some advice for parents who are worried about their children.
2: Well,
3: it's you know, saying saying aces is a scary thing. It sounds scary and it sounds full on, and really, you know, it's it's not. You might not under, really understand that terminology. So, I mean, I just think that reaching out to a peer support network and discussing and it's hard to do because you're talking about very personal things I suppose if you started off just talking about your child's behaviours and I I imagine that lots of parents do this anyway um, to some degree but just sort of opening up that conversation with friends and peers um, and you know getting their perspective on it. I suppose it's helpful having somebody from the outside looking in and being able to sort of see it from a completely different perspective. But um, yeah, beyond that, I suppose going to the doctor even, that can be helpful. Speaking to school, it depends, I suppose it depends what how old the child is, but speaking to school, because that's where they spend the majority of their day, Um, And schools, you know, schools have resources and they have ideas and they can be supportive. There are a lot of reasons
0: to work with caregivers. Because a child's parent or caregiver will often be the person who
1: knows that child best, who's spending a lot of time with them day to day. So they're in a really good place um, to work with their child and to help and support them.
2: This approach is, is about not having, you know, a professional who knows it all. Rather, having a supported parent, because part of this is to support the parents as well. We don't just expect people to, you know, (laughs) be fully in charge of everything. That's also a lot of added pressure. It could be a lot of added pressure, but it's, I think it's the dynamic changes. It's not about then let's treat the family. It's about giving that family resources and tools and stuff so that they can work with each other rather than have that professional there that knows what they're doing and that family's just in a passive position. I think that's
1: really important. I think we heard quite a lot when we were doing the initial development work for the project was that parents often feel really blamed for the problems that their um, child has been through and often um, parents are offered parenting courses Um, but there seems to be a bit of a stigma attached to being offered a parenting course and um, parents are telling us that they got the sense that they were being told that they weren't good enough so we want to kind of move away from saying you know we need to teach you how to parent and instead saying you know, you know how to parent, you know, you've know you been doing it for years, um, you've got a really good relationship with your child, we want to be able to give you the tools um, so that you can use that relationship and build on it in a way that will um, yeah, help your child thrive going forwards. Yeah. So this project has two stages and we're in the first stage at the moment. Um, the first stage of the project is all about developing the intervention um, and we're drawing on lots of different sources of information to help us come up with um, an intervention that will hopefully be as useful as possible. Um, the first part of that has been looking at the literature on existing interventions that use positive psychology, um, which is the approach that we're hoping to draw from. Um, so we've looked at over 60 papers so far that have described existing positive psychology interventions, um, and we've been picking out common components from them um, to see which bits might be helpful as part of our intervention. And Alongside that, we've been running a qualitative study where we're aiming to gather the views of a wide range of different stakeholders. Um, to see um, what they would like from this sort of intervention, what they think would be most useful, how it should be delivered. So isabella has been speaking to um, parents and carers and some children and young people um, to get their views. Um, we've also just started running some focus groups with professionals, um, so people who work with um, children and families after they've experienced um, a setting or stressful events. And we're seeing from their point of view um, what they think would be most helpful in a support package, what would be practical to deliver, Um, And we're hoping to bring together all those sources of information um, to develop um, an initial design for our support package. Um, And we're working together with a team of stakeholders who are working with us as researchers on the project um, to come up with that initial design. Um, And then the second stage of the project will be about trying out the support package that we've come up with. Um, So we'll be piloting it just for a small number of families initially, and we'll be looking for around 12 families to try the intervention. Um, and see whether they think it's helpful. Um, And then we hope the next stage after this project is finished will be to then um, do a larger trial to see whether or not it's effective and whether it does um, help to improve outcomes for children.
2: Yes, so I think in a way we're kind of covering as much ground as we can in the sense of knowing like what is out there. So a big chunk of the study is theoretical, right? Is reading everything that everyone has done pretty Mm much. And it's a lot of papers. And I think a lot of the times things are developed based solely on the research. So, you know, um, every, okay, they tried this, it worked, it didn't work, let's try it, or let's change it and try it. But as well, so aside from doing that, we are also looking for the lived experience. So, and not just the parents' lived experience, not just the child's lived experience, everyone's. So that's, this is why I think it's so important to, to, yes, see what's been done, see what has worked, what research is out there, what we can learn from them, but also then speak to people and say, look, this is what's out there. What do you think? What would work in your case? How is your context? Because it's different. People are different, you know. This dedication to co-production is at the heart of Aspire.
3: So the, the project is in fairly early stages at the moment. Um, it's been really fascinating being introduced to all these um, brilliant researchers (laughs) um, on Teams meetings and being involved and seeing it from, well, hearing clinicians talking about it and researchers talking about it and what, you know, it's great to hear the passion coming from that side. Um, So, yeah, I'm just learning that. I think this is becoming a, a, an issue that is maybe coming to the forefront of people's minds, which I, I think is great. And I think as we, I think it's going to have some relevance to more families than we may be realised. And I think that, um, especially as we mer- emerge from lockdown, yeah, I think this is, this is really timely.
0: One of Aspire's Young People stakeholders is called Seb. He has a speech impairment, so a transcript of what he says is in the show notes. He's also a fan of co-production.
4: I am a fan of co-production. I think it's a great idea to do co-production. But one point of doing it, it we have old fishing that we can't put in co presenting into because it's too big to entwine.
2: And if we're going to develop something which we hope will be effective for people we need to know from them what actually would work for them in their context considering the, the amount of different lives we have out there lifestyles and everything so i think it's really really important to actually have a sense of of yes this has been tried out this has been tested it has been done but also let's speak to the people who are, you know, live somewhat in a similar context as those that would we would be, you know, wanting to offer the the package to in a way. And also not just as participants, not just as like what do you think of this, but in the sense of what Brian was saying, the stakeholders to have people involved in the development of the project as well, not just their views of what the, what the intervention, what the package should look like, but also how we should be running this study. Because we come from, you know, each of us has a different way of thinking, has a different way of, of, of researching and, and, you know, things that, so for instance, one thing that has been really helpful for me particularly in working with the stakeholders is when we developed a summary pack, for instance, of, of what we saw, of the research, to then um, send to the participants who are going to get interviewed and have their views on that. Yeah, so for instance, Seb, one of the stakeholders, which is um, also taking part in this podcast, um, for instance, he was involved in, you know, making the the summary pack that we presented to the participants. Here is Rachel, who has experience of trauma in her family.
4: And young people, you know, moving, this is, is... need to know what's going on. The young people need to understand what, what we are talking at. The young people need to feel that we are, they have been seen and heard and feel that they, something, that something is saying. Something that they head or hear or, sh- or said that something through really things.
2: Isabella explaining more about co-production. When I develop a summary pack, when Bryony develops a summary pack, we have our specific ways of developing that, which is from a position of someone who is in psychology for, you know, quite some time, who's used to technical terms, who's used... And then when we get stakeholders, people who are not in this context, people who live similar lives as the ones that we will be interviewing, tell me, what on earth does this mean? <laughs> it's actually really, really useful for me, you know, for us to work together in making all of this accessible and and easy to understand and also, you know, and have people say, no, I, I don't think you should interview them. I think you should interview them. I think you should do this... I don't know, for me it's actually very valuable to have as many people involved, um, with different types of experiences and different backgrounds, so we can make something that is accessible to as many people as possible, I suppose.
1: It's all about diversity of perspectives, isn't it?
2: (laughs) She summarizes everything, actually, in a sentence. (laughs) Because we're still recruiting, we don't want to to say what's, what we've found, you know, in the transcriptions and the interviews, because obviously it can bias the next ones if someone were to listen to this and then get interviewed. So this bit will have to remain a mystery for now. <laughs> but um, intervention component analysis is basically the that bit that we mentioned, where we're going through every paper published in English in the past many many years, many papers. It's so many papers. And, and then we're extracting um, relevant information from all of them, okay? So what we found, now we've, we've gone through, I think, 60-something papers so far. We're trying to see what they have in common. We're trying to see, you know, what did they try? What was the intervention? What were they aiming for? Did they achieve that? How did they try it, most importantly, as well? So what we've been finding is very, very different interventions, Most of them, in the first 60 papers, I must say, were delivered at school by teachers or sometimes a therapist that went to school to deliver that. So it was delivered specifically in that setting. There has not been so far one that has been delivered by caregivers. So every time we we read something, we need to think, would this be feasible? It's one of the questions we usually ask ourselves. Is this feasible? Can we, is it possible to train a caregiver, for instance? Or does it need to be a clinical psychologist, for instance? So these are the questions we keep asking ourselves. What we did find from that was four main components. So four things that the, the packages all have at some point, right? Some will have one of them, some will have all four. They're just very different. So the first one being they all what we called like thoughts and feelings, so all of them have some sort of like a cognitive emotional component to them. So they work on linking people's thoughts to their feelings, emotion regulation, um, challenging negative thoughts, you know along those lines, as well as things that you feel. So for instance, gratitude is considered something within the thoughts and feelings component. So if the intervention at some point works on that, it has, it includes a thoughts and feelings component. There's a social component, so interventions that include um, anything regarding the interaction, so how that young person interacts with others, with parents, siblings, peers, you know, the world in general, and also things about the interaction, like forgiveness, like strengthening relationships, like, you know, that that kind of um, work done in the sense of how they interact. There is a future-focused component as well, so anything that works pretty much on how that person sees the future. It can be optimism, it can be hope, it can be goal-setting, it can be, so anything about, you know, your best possible self, anything that kind of is about the future, that young person's future. And lastly, we have how you see yourself, so anything self concept um, character strengths, um, self-esteem, and um, you know, so we found that ev- all of them had, in one way or another, something that worked along those lines. So these are topics, right? Activities is a whole different thing. So we still, we will need, and this is something we ask people when they're being interviewed: what kinds of activities would we would be able to, you know, um, propose or develop in a way? to work on these topics?
1: So all of the interventions that we looked at broadly come under the category of positive psychology um, because that's the approach that we thought would be most helpful for the particular focus of this intervention, where we're looking at um, not working with a group of young people who are necessarily experiencing um, difficulties at a level that would warrant clinical intervention, um, but we're looking to prevent them needing intervention later on, is the idea. Um, So, we decided to go for a positive psychology framework um, to base the intervention around. Positive psychology is all about what enables a person to thrive and live their best life, I guess. And it's sort of named that as a contrast to kind of other forms of psychology, which traditionally tended to focus on kind of the negatives in life, I guess. Um, So, there was a lot of attention in the early days of psychology and still um, to this day on sort of treating um, disorders, I guess, um, things that might go wrong um, for someone. So positive psychology shifts the focus slightly. So rather than looking at what can go wrong, it looks at what can go right and how um, in a person's life um, and providing support that can enable people to kind of build on their strengths um, and to yeah live their best possible life. Brani on co-production. So co-production is definitely a relatively new thing. Um, it's been gaining, I guess, prominence and people are increasingly recognising um, the power, I guess, of co-production. Um, But, yeah, it it is still quite new, um, and the way that it's done has changed, I think. So um, the idea of involving people with um, lived experience of a topic um, has been around for a while, Um, but initially I think it was often done in quite a tokenistic way, where you might consult a group of people who just experienced a specific difficulty or used a particular service, Um, and it's gradually moved to a kind of less tokenistic way of doing things where people can be kind of truly involved throughout um, and often leading a project Um, so coming up with ideas being involved in kind of all stages of a project Um, so that's what we're trying to kind of move towards with this project Um, so rather than just having um, a stakeholder group that perhaps is advised at the beginning and then comes in at the end um, to have opportunities for people to be involved throughout Um, and to be really key in making decisions throughout the project. Um, So I think the crucial way that um, stakeholders will be involved in this particular project is in designing the support package, designing the intervention. Um, So we're kind of building towards um, an intervention development workshop in the summer, um, and that's when we'll bring our stakeholder group all together. Um, We'll present um, everything that we found out over the past six months or so. Um, So the results of the component analysis, where we've looked at the existing research, Um, and the findings from the interviews and focus groups that we've been doing um, with parents and caregivers, children and professionals. Um, And then we'll give the stakeholder group the power to decide, right, what should we do with that information? Um, How should we put this um, intervention together? What should the components be? What should the activities be? What kind of support will the um, parents and caregivers need to be able to deliver this intervention? And who should that come from? Who should be providing that support? Um, And yeah, then we'll, we'll go away develop something based on what they tell us um, they think the support package should look like, present it back to them to review um, and make tweaks to if they need to, before we then have our our prototype that we'll bring into the next phase um, to pilot and see whether
0: it um, is a promising approach. Like most studies this year, COVID-19 has had an impact.
1: So it's probably important we talk about the pandemic and the impact that that's had on the project. Um, so that really has changed the way that the co-production process has worked. Um, so we would have hoped to have had um, a lot more face-to-face meetings. Um, instead, most things have had to be done online using video conferencing software. That's had some real benefits. It's meant we've been able to um, involve people from really wide um, range of places rather than just having to work with people who are able to kind of make it to us, I guess. But yeah, it also has had um, some challenges um, just in making sure that we're able to kind of interact and do things in a way that's kind of fun (laughs) when it all has to be over video call, which people are generally quite sick of by this point in the pandemic, I think. I think it also has made the project in some ways even more important, though, Um, because we know that this past year has been a really stressful, difficult time for for lots of people and especially families and families with young children um, so unfortunately that's likely to mean that more families will be experiencing um, these sorts of difficulties that would come under the the category of adverse charged experiences um, in particular we know that there has been an increase in domestic violence over this period um, so yeah i think it does make um make this project and being able to offer support to families who have been through particularly stressful or upsetting experiences yeah even more vital
3: Rachel echoed this oh I just can't imagine what it would be like for some families right now um I mean for me the I lent on my mum for most of my support and she was around all the time um but I would not have been able to do that during Covid she wouldn't have been allowed to come round. it would have been completely different so no I just think Being unable to access services because of COVID, being unable to lean on friends or family for support would just accelerate the problems within the home massively, very quickly. (laughs)
0: Lastly, Bryony and Isabella have a request.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. And it would be good to mention recruitment. Um... Yeah, so we're still looking
1: for a few more participants for the first stage of the project. Um, So we've recruited um, our target number of parents and carers so far, although we are looking to hopefully get approval to just recruit um, some dads or male caregivers, um, because all of the um, caregivers who've taken part so far have been mums or female caregivers. Um, But we're still looking for some children to take part, um, so young people between the ages of 8 and 14, um, who've experienced um, stressful, upsetting events themselves. Um, So we're looking for them to take part um, in a short one-off interview which would take place um, over the phone or via a video call. Um, And we're also looking for more professionals to take part. Um, So those could be professionals working in a range of roles, so it might be in um, mental health, it could be in education, the voluntary sector, social care. Um, But they need to have some experience of working with children or their families um, after the child has experienced difficult events, so adverse childhood experiences. Anyone's interested in finding out more, um, the email address to contact us is aspire at nsft.nhs.uk. And we'll put that down in the show notes as well.
2: Well, I think that's it then.
1: (laughs) Yeah, great. Yeah, thank you, Isabella. (laughs) Thanks, Bryony. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening. Please do subscribe. It's free and means the podcast will automatically download every fortnight. Do rate and review the podcast and follow our social media accounts. They're all in the show notes. And more than anything, look after yourself.